Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. Welcome to another episode of the PM&R Report. Today we will be talking about non-invasive brain and spine stimulation in motor recovery after spinal cord injury. I'm Jason Edwards, the Chief Resident at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston McGovern Medical School, and I'm honored today to welcome two of our very own, Dr. Radha Korapulu and Dr. Narai Yazbataran. Dr. Korapulu completed her physical medicine and rehabilitation residency at the University of Kentucky College of Medicine in Lexington, where she served as chief resident. She completed a spinal cord injury fellowship at UT Health and is an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at McGovern Medical School, as well as an attending physician at Tier Memorial Hermann. Dr. Yazbadaran received her PhD from the Dokuz Eilul University School of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation. She was a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Neurology at the University of California, Irvine, and the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at McGovern Medical School. She is an assistant professor for research in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the McGovern Medical School. Thank you both so very much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Could you give some background information on, on non-invasive brain and spine stimulation? What exactly are we talking about and, and how does it work? So with the non-invasive direct current stimulation, we're basically talking about direct current stimulation. Either you apply it, if you apply it on the brain, uh, it's transcranial direct current stimulation. If you apply over the spine, it's a transpinal. So the electricity date depending on what polarity you use, it can cause, it, it, it can increase the excitability of the neurons underneath or decrease excitability. And by doing that, actually, you can modulate uh, their ability to perform the function or they can, you can modulate the neurophysiological function and you can use it as a therapeutic tool along with the other, um, you know, other rehab um, training to improve the outcomes. So I would like to add uh, was introduction of uh, the engineering into uh, medicine. Things got a lot more different and more uh, exciting actually in the last uh, 15, 20 years maybe. And now uh, before it used to be like a black box, the brain, we could not uh, really access the brain uh, from outside. But now with this uh, very uh, exciting tools like transcranial magnetic stimulation or transcranial direct current stimulation, we have a way to access the brain without uh, really opening up and uh, use surgical uh, techniques. And we can do this day by day. Now, you mentioned access. I think that's an interesting point. Um, Dr. Kuropulu, you brought up about the growing non uh, evidence suggesting that non-invasive Transcranial stimulation can promote motor recovery in the upper extremities in patients with, with stroke and spinal cord injury. However, application of TDCS to improve lower extremity function has had only limited success. Could you maybe speak on why we, we think that is? Mm-hmm. 
Um, so if you know how the uh, motor area representation of upper extremity and lower extremity, upper extremity is more superficial, it's on the surface, so you can easily stimulate it, whereas the lower extremity is really embedded medially and it's, it's much difficult to access and it's much lower. So that could be the reason, one reason, and also in these, it, there are only few studies which have studied the lower extremity function. Maybe um, they need to test at different intensities, or um, when I was reviewing to prepare for this talk, they said actually to access the lower extremity, the cathodal stimulation might be better than the anodal. So maybe there is more research needed to be done, but might be those, those might be the reasons that, you know, that in lower extremity we didn't see very good results yet. And, and you talked about your, um, there's a proof of concept study looking at the dose response relationship as, as well as, I think, uh, can you maybe expand upon that a little bit in terms of what, what is the optimal dose? Do we know at this point? We don't know what's the optimal dose. Uh, relatively, TSDCS is newer compared to the TDCS, that which has been extensively studied. So right now we are just translating it from the animal to humans, and there was only one dose response study that was the you know the, the paper that recently got accepted in neuro rehab. So we really don't know. We don't know if we can use even higher doses than what I have tested. So as of now, we don't have an answer. Okay. And I think you brought up an important point about the homogeneity of the animal studies versus then we try and translate that to our human studies and it doesn't always work out that you know we induce the injuries in animals so we have control over that. How do you even begin to take into account all the heterogeneity in human studies? Mm -hmm. So. And, and that's the reason, you know, a lot of animal studies which are successful do not translate to the humans. So just because, you know, we need larger sample size for which you need bigger grants, and also maybe you need multi-site randomized control trials. So some of this heterogeneity you can overcome if you have a larger sample size. Um, and also, if you can control some other factors that I was talking about, like when they're taking medications, maybe try to do the uh, age match, or maybe even match them based on the BMI or something, um, and have larger sample size to overcome some of those things. But it's still very challenging, not only animals to humans, healthy humans, to when you come to spinal cord injury, you mm -hmm. are adding actually even more heterogeneity depending on level of injury. But as long as you have a response, maybe, you know, um, each person, you have to test them before you tell them, okay, this is the optimal dose, but maybe each person it might be a different dose and the different polarity. So, you, you know, the way you do the testing with the baclopin trial or some of other mm -hmm. intervention, that's what maybe you have to customize it down the road. Could you touch upon your, your findings from your proof of concept study looking at the, the dose dependent response? Mm -hmm. So in proof of concept study, we did it only in healthy humans. In that study, the anodal transpinal direct current stimulation actually has shown that as the, we increase the doses, it improved the motor evoked potentials. Uh, the motor evoked potentials are obtained by stimulating directly the motor cortex and in this particular case we in study we use the transmagnetic stimulation and we collected it from the soleus muscle. And at the same time, it actually decreased, as we started increasing the dose of anodal current, it decreased the H reflex um, amplitude. And that's what you want in our spinal cord injury patients, H reflex as spasticity goes up, H reflex goes up. So you want to bring the H reflex amplitude down and you want to improve the motor evoked potential. So that's what 
uh, in the my, uh, proof of concept study we found. And, and during that study, you talked a little bit about the, the safety criteria um, that you used. What, in, in general, could you touch upon some of the contraindications we should be aware of when, when using non-invasive stimulation? So I'll only speak of transpinal direct stimulation, okay. but Nurai can fill you about transdirect later. Um, so definitely there is always, a, you're creating an electric field as Nurai talked in her talk. Uh, so it's not only where you are putting the electrode, the current travels from um, you know one electrode to the other electrode, depending on which one you're using. So it can create heat. So if there's any metal underneath, you can heat it up and you can cause some damage. Uh, so if there is any metal underneath, definitely since we don't know what it, what level you are causing the heat, we will be very careful that. And already if the patient has some superficial skin lesions or something else is going on, I would definitely not use it. So these are the two main ones for now. And of course if the patients are sensitive and if they have any adverse effects uh, after the use, um, that, that would be other thing, the pain. Thank you. Um, Conflictations. indications for transcranial. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, metal definitely is a no-no. In addition, I would say some medications which may interfere with the TDCS effect, so we have to be very cautious about what medications the patients are using. And uh, some may enhance the effect, so it can cause seizures. Some may decrease the effect, we may not see any benefit. In addition to that, uh, yeah, open uh, skin um, um, uh, abrasions or uh, infection, these are all uh, general um, uh, contraindications. Thank you. Um, Dr. Yazbadaran, I, I know you mentioned how longer periods of stimulation resulted in, in a longer uh, increased duration yeah. of effect. Um, I think a, a big question that a lot of people have is, you know, when we awake, we awaken these neural pathways. Yeah. Um, is what is the duration that we're looking at here? I mean, is this something that, if this does, you know, translate into clinical practice, is this something that they're going to have to continue to receive treatment for for mm -hmm. the rest of their life? Mm -hmm. Is this something where we'll see a prolonged effect or? Uh, I think this is a very good question, thank you. Uh, we, could, we could not have a time to talk about the treatment dosage, but treatment dosage is very important, just like as a medication dosage. We are talking, talking here about uh, the intensity, duration, uh, the frequency, and uh, the amplitude and everything. So it all comes together to cause... Uh, so uh, we would expect was an optimum treatment dosage to get the highest benefits, right? And uh, right now, uh, none uh, research so far came up with any optimal dosage to, um, to say uh, for stroke recovery, for spinal cord injury recovery, or for any uh, headache, uh, fatigue, etc. But there, is, um, uh, there are studies going on uh, we know from the motor, lit uh, motor uh, re recovery literature that instead of um, applying uh, uh, this uh, TDCS uh, over an uh, extended period of time and uh, with intervals, like say uh, two times per week for eight weeks has not shown uh, more, a higher benefit than uh, five times a week, uh, two consecutive weeks. So it's short. It's uh, frequent, um, but it uh, provides the uh, highest benefit so far. So with motor cortex, it also depends on what brain region do you really deal with. So if you look at the 
maybe cognitive uh, functions, you may come with uh, a different treatment dosage. But for our interest, uh, the motor recovery, so it's uh, motor cortex is our primary uh, region of interest. And uh, it's, uh, instead of uh, interval uh, stimulation, uh, consecutive stimulation has proven to be more effective. Mm -hmm. But 10 days, we don't know. 10 days is just minimum. We have to really have uh, more comparative studies which looks at the treatment dosage of 10 days versus 20 days maybe or 30 days. Uh, because um, we and also to keep in mind uh, neuromodulation, especially with TDCS in mm -hmm. motor recovery, we should not expect uh, a, um, um, TDCS alone to be effective. So TDCS is really providing an adjunct uh, therapy modality. So we still go with our uh, rehab protocols, but we want to get uh, tools that can enhance. So we want to take a, an, an analogy, we want to bring the patient from one side of the river to the other side and we want to uh, create a bridge, but uh, how long the bridge is going to be, how uh, wide the bridge is going to be, this is all uh, research questions that we need to um, uh, research more and um, come up with uh, some uh, outcome reports. Thank you. I think that's an important point about <clears throat> the idea that the non-invasive stimulation by itself is is not enough no, or not, not as effective. No. Um, and you touched upon a point in your lecture about the idea of treatment synergy and yes. combining multiple modalities. Could you uh, kind of explain what you've been working on with the robotic-assisted training in addition to the non-invasive uh, stimulation? Uh, with the robotic-assisted therapy, we started about uh, probably seven, eight years ago first. And uh, Dr. Francisco, uh, he uh, had this idea of using robotic in spinal cord injury because when we look at the literature, we haven't seen any publication at that time. There was one case report, as far as I can remember, and also maybe a thesis from uh, a university in uh, Florida, I guess. Um, and then uh, there was a huge... Uh, uh, literature from stroke and there was also a lot of literature in spinal cord injury looking at the gait functions but upper limb uh, recovery alone it was the treatment protocols that uh, aims to uh, improve mo movement functions in upper limb is so little and uh, and also very sparse um, and uh, but when you look at the uh, at the spinal cord injury facts and uh, the uh, the priority the people set as uh, tetraplegia, it's highest in improving upper limb functions. And tetraplegia is like almost half of the spinal cord injury population. And half of these people say regaining arm and hand functions will benefit our uh, uh, our quality of life most. And uh, what is the treatment options? Not much uh, even and not very effective. So we were looking at what can we do with robotics since stroke literature is so positive about it. And we implemented robotic therapy. We started um, replicating the stroke uh, protocol. So three times per week uh, for four weeks. Mm -hmm. And we have seen very positive changes in, uh, again in patients. And then we came up uh, with this idea about what if we uh, add a modality that can enhance this uh, outcomes and give us uh, maybe uh, sooner 
um, and uh, time matters as well, mm -hmm. uh, right? And um, so that's how we started with robotic training. Uh, and I'm truly a believer of uh, repetition matters. <laughs> and any uh, protocol I design uh, for research, uh, I want to add more repetitions as possible. And you gave some striking numbers this morning as far as um, looking at a typical yeah. therapy session and the number of repetition. Yeah. Could you speak on that briefly? Because I thought it was uh, quite profound. Yeah. I think it also depends on the goal. Uh, this uh, the question of uh, effective treatment protocols comes up uh, at any uh, neuro rehab meetings. Can be stroke, can be spinal cord injury, can be Parkinson's or MS. It really doesn't matter. We still haven't gotten a very uh, effective protocol yet. Uh, but we know the the road to an effective. So plasticity is very important, and we have huge literature to back up what do we need to enhance the plasticity and one uh, parameter is definitely the repetition but at the same time uh, we know uh, I'm not a clinician uh, but this is my take out from uh, readings and uh, listening to clinicians when they um, apply uh, the clinical protocols there's a time limitation and there's also an expectation of uh, independence, right? They want to make the people independent as soon as possible and not rather uh, work on the plasticity. So there is a debate uh, as far as I can see. Uh, that's why task-oriented protocols, um, they, they train patients on a specific task so they can be independent as soon as possible, right? But that doesn't necessarily include uh, plasticity um, in itself. So right. for plasticity, we need repetition. But for um, for clinical uh, a, a, a clinical desired clinical outcomes, uh, there are other things, including insurances as well. Uh, Dr. Koropolo, definitely, she's uh, the expert and can talk more about this part. But this is how I see. So task-oriented therapy versus um, high intensity repetitive treatments have different goals mm -hmm. but uh, we, we study plasticity that's why I stick with repetition yeah. repetitions promotes recovery that focuses more yes. on the neuro recovery whereas yes. on the other side we are only looking for compensatory techniques so that they can yes. be home safe yeah. Yeah. and we know most of some of insurance companies have like only 40 sessions per year period I mean, some insurance right. company based on medical necessity. So we have a lot of patients with limited. So if we can do anything to enhance yes. whatever they can get out of the therapy. So that's why I think these tools will help. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, back to numbers, uh, this the study was showing uh, 42 uh, out of uh, like five, uh, 800 sessions, actually. So in PT and OT combined sessions. The median number was 42 repetitions. And that was 42 for each, task. For, for each task. For Yeah, mm -hmm. 42, uh, I guess in total, the upper limb uh, repetition. Okay. In not so only one specific Not one specific okay. task. Oh, wow. So, and uh, whereas uh, in robotic therapy, we're talking about 1,000 movement repetitions. That's there wonderful. we are not really Sweet. asking the patient to pick up an object or move an object or dress or etc. 
we just uh, put the arm into an exoskeleton and we ask the patient to perform uh, active repetitive movements. Of course, we can challenge it by adding resistance, by mm -hmm. making it uh, maybe um, uh, different. There are different, uh, I mean, like movement uh, or this uh, motor um, learning uh, protocols, but that's another thing. But all aims to uh, have more repetitions. Now you, you touched on um, the, the limitations, you know, insurance being one. Um, you know, we see growing literature that shows these modalities are safe and effective. What are some of the other barriers to using this in the clinical setting? And, and how close are we to seeing this as a potential treatment option, in your opinion? So, you know, you need phase three trials uh, before you mm -hmm. can go to the FDA. So TDCS, I, I think there are some phase three trials going on, so hopefully soon it will come. Mm -hmm. And I think once it's FDA approved, um, hopefully down the soon it can be something that can be safely used at home too. Maybe they will have to come up with the devices where they cannot go up on the current beyond the safety limit or it automatically shuts off if it finds high resistance or something to so make it safe to use it. Just mm -hmm. like you know how you, we are already sending our patients with the neuromuscular electrical stimulation device at home. Mm -hmm. We train them in the clinic and then they take it to home. So once I think it's FDA approved, hopefully it can be soon on the market. Yeah, um, I agree. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, it will be good to uh, mod. Uh, I mean, to combine uh, modalities uh, to really uh, help uh, people who are left with uh, paralysis for the rest of their lives. And uh, we need to have more smart uh, approaches. And it's going into that direction. It's very the horizon is very open it's and uh, optimistic. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I remember once I was in a cafeteria and there was a somebody who has done in physics. You know, he was asking how much of physics course I have done in my life, and I was telling that oh, I only had in my high school. They should have it in the medical school yeah. now. Yes, of course, yeah. I think they should have it in the <laughs> medical school because so much yeah. you know biomedical engineering mm -hmm. and the you know, I see coming into the medicine, like all the devices, look at the pacers, there's yeah. that. Diaphragmatic pacer that we use in spinal cord, I mean, yeah. that's so much. I think seeing the collaboration as well is yeah, exciting. Yeah, um, very, exactly. And it, it, it's, you know, similar to our field. I mean, that's how we approach things right. in, in, in physiatry. Yeah. So. yeah, we are lucky here. Uh, we are able to uh, collaborate with uh, great engineers in their field uh, from Rice University, Dr. O'Malley, from University of Houston, uh, Dr. Pepe Contreras. Uh, we are really fortunate to work with engineers and uh, exchange ideas and knowledge and um, build uh, better protocols. Um, uh, we hope uh, the research was not uh, very uh, challenging with uh, the grant and funding mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, resources. Uh, this is a big problem now in research, especially uh, uh, people like me in research suffer a lot from uh, funding uh, problems. But um, um, yeah, we do what we have to do. <laughs> awesome. Do you, um, either of you in closing have any advice for where we can go and learn more about non-invasive brain stimulation? Is there one source you would recommend if somebody wants to find out more? Yeah, absolutely. No recovery research center. <laughs> <laughs> Our own, own department. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.
Ladies and gentlemen, as we close another session of our podcast, I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.